Hi, thank you for listening to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church. Here at FBC, it's our mission to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, and we hope that this message helps you continue to grow in your faith. This audio is property of First Baptist Church, but feel free to give away copies of this message in the hopes that others will be impacted by what they hear. For more information about FBC, or if you want to stay connected with us, visit our website at fbclloyd.ca or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, and enjoy the latest from FBC. Why don't you guys grab a seat? Peace, love, harmony, togetherness, teamwork, collaboration, camaraderie, unity. These are descriptors that I feel are positive descriptors of relationships or groups of people or organizations. I'm assuming it wouldn't take too much for me to convince most of you that those are positive descriptors of our relationships. On the other hand, hatred, discord, arguing, fighting, jealousy, dissensions, factions, disunity, I would suggest are not the types of descriptors that we want to or would want to strive to label our relationships with. That's not what I think most of us are hoping for out of our relationships. If you're here this morning and it is, I'd love to have a personal conversation with you and be you have the chance to try to sell you on how great of an idea unity is when it comes to relationships. This morning, that's what I want to talk about. Uh, we've been working through this um, book of the Bible called Titus. Hopefully, you've been around for some of it. If you're new, uh, welcome here this morning. Um, and what I want to focus on is just this idea of unity versus division in the church, in this giant relationship that we have with all these people that show up on Sundays, we do things with midweek or whatever, or around the world, we're part of this thing called church, and I want to talk about the importance of unity in the church. So we've been going through this series for six weeks, a short book of the Bible called Titus. Paul's writing to this young pastor named Titus in this uh, Greek island named Crete, and he's writing this letter to him, and so far we've seen that he said a bunch of things. He starts out by saying, I want people to grow in their faith and in their knowledge of truth that leads to godliness. And he starts to kind of unpack how some of that rolls out. He's like, I want there to be strong leadership. I want there to be strong leadership in the church. I want you guys to do a good job of leading. Put people in place who can lead the church with strong character. Fight against false teachings in the church by embracing truth. And then gives instructions about how we could live, how we could honor each other well, how we can live well within our culture and our world in a way that reflects the Jesus that we claim to follow. And then right in the middle of the, there's this treatment of God's grace and how much it changes our lives and how all of this is built on that. These are pretty important teachings. Paul goes over a lot in these three short chapters. I would say, I hope that you've learned some things. I hope that some of this has impacted you, maybe motivated you in your relationship with Jesus, inspired you a bit over these past six weeks. But I would say that if we can't get this unity piece that we're going to talk about this morning, then it pretty much writes off everything that we've talked about in the past five weeks. We can learn all these things. We can try to do all these things on a personal level. But if we can't do that in unity, if we can't do that together as a team, then it becomes almost kind of pointless. Unity in the church is, I'd say, sounds like a pretty good concept, but if you've been around for the church for a while, you know that these are interesting places and that it's often easier said than done. That this idea of, and why is it easier said than done? Because others are the problem, right? You know, everyone else is messing it up and they're dividing the church, right? 
we're sinful, broken people who are struggling in this organization together, and as a result, unity is easier said than done. So this morning, we're looking at these 13 verses, Titus 3, 3 through 15, and we're going to kind of work through it, make a few comments on a lot of it. A bunch of it is stuff that kind of relates to what we've already talked about. What I want to do this morning is I'm really going to zero in on verses 9 to 11, so we'll go through pretty quickly, and we're going to come back to verses 9 to 11 that talks about unity and division. We're going to camp out there, and hopefully there's some stuff this morning that's helpful for you. I also quickly want to say before we hop in, as as we wrap up this series, I I hope that you've enjoyed it. I hope that there have been things that you can take away and put into practice in your life today. I also hope you're in a small group and you've been able to uh, catch uh, Chip Ingram with his magical pinky situation going on um, as he teaches. If if you're not in a small group, you don't know what I'm talking about, so you just missed the inside joke there. So that's why you should join a small group. But um, hopefully uh, you've been getting some cool stuff out of that. The video coming up this week is a great way for him to close off the series. He's a powerful speaker. I hope that this series has been helpful on a practical level for you. Whenever we do a book of the Bible here at FBC, my greatest like overarching big picture desire is that you walk away from these series with a greater desire to think and to engage with God personally and to spend time reading scripture. It's great that you come on a Sunday. It's great that you go to small group. I hope that you walk away saying this book matters and it can change my life. And I hope that as we work through it, and Chip Ingram works through it, or you work through it in your small groups, it also gives you and inspires you with some helpful tools and ways that you can approach Scripture and better understand it and better learn from it. So anyways, that's my hope. As you walk away from this, you remember anything, know that my, my number one is that you walk away just being like, this, this thing is life-changing, and I want to spend some time with it. Anyways, we got to get into the text. I could talk about that for a while. Why don't you guys pray with me? God, thank you so much that a long time ago in a way different part of the world, you inspired Paul to write this letter to this young pastor named Titus. And thank you that all these years later, in a different language, in a different place, in a different culture, it still applies so meaningfully to us, God. I just ask that this morning as we hop into a topic that's maybe a little sensitive or hard or or, or challenging for us to kind of think about, I pray that you would just continue to challenge us and convict us and work in our hearts. Help us be a church that cares about unity as we relate to one another and we fulfill your mission here. We love you, God. Amen. So just a quick recap. Last week, Gord is in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3, and Paul is talking about people, uh, you know, living in ways that honor this Christ that they claim to follow. And what he's about to do, starting in verses 3 through 8, this first section, is he's going to give them a reminder. Everything he's been talking about is, he's talking about this is what you need to do now in the church, and this is what you need to look forward to in the future. This is kind of about Christian living now and forward. And now Paul, in these next verses, is going to call people's memories back to the past, what it was like before they had Jesus in their lives. So this is verse 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. So Paul rewinds our memories here. He says, listen, I just want to remind you guys, maybe you've been at church for a while, maybe you've been following Jesus for a while, I want to remind you what it was like before that. 
And he says, you, you lived a life that was pretty dark. You, you were enslaved by this thing the Scripture talks about called sin, and it, it had its grip on your life in a tight way. You were enslaved. You were, you were broken. This is, your, this is Paul saying, you know, we started at the bottom and now we're here kind of thing. You know, he's like, this is, this is where we came from. This is all of our origin story. Now we're here. And you might say, well, why, why dwell in the past? What, what, like, why are we going back to that? And I would agree on one hand. I don't think, sometimes people, you know, they dwell in the past. I don't think this is healthy to, to live in guilt and regret for what's gone on in the past. We should look at the present and the future as these gifts is that, we can, that we can live in and we can live a reconciled life with Jesus. But sometimes, I think we are in such a fast-paced world that we just totally neglect our narrative up until this point. And when we neglect our ne- narrative, what we really neglect is God's part in our narrative. If you read through the Bible, if you read through the Old Testament, when God speaks to his nation, what he often does is he reminds them of the past. He doesn't just say, hey, here are all the things I'm going to do. Usually he starts out by saying, here's where we came from. I am the Lord your God who set you free from oppression and slavery in Egypt. I am the Lord your God who set you free from your enemies. I am the God that did this. I am the God that brought you out. of." He continually reminds them over and over again. And sometimes when he's reminding them, it's people that are generations after the event that he's reminding them of. But why does he do this? Because so often we just live in the, pr- the present and, and, and looking at the future that we neglect what's gotten us here. And what's gotten us here as followers of Jesus is the incredible life-changing grace of Jesus Christ. One of the most healthy practices we can do is sometimes slow down and just reflect on the narrative that God's brought us through. Say, God, wow, thank you. Reflect on how he has worked so powerfully in our lives. And this is, this is what I would say about reflecting on the past. I would say that reflecting on the past helps us embrace God's goodness in our present and enables us to gain a vision for our future. So often we just want to skip step, step one. We just want to be step two and step three. Think about it this way. When things are good, what's, what, what's kind of our natural tendency? We, we become self-assured. We're like, oh, I, I'm doing well in life. I'm succeeding. Things are good. I'm strong. I'm self-reliant. I can do it. And we neglect to remember God's goodness in our present because we've got it figured out. And our vision for the future is usually dependent on our own abilities and our own narrative up until this point. And when things are tough, we can also forget because we look at, why isn't God showing up right now? Why isn't God doing what I want him to do right now? But in both of those moments, if we were to stop and look back at what God has done through our life, where he's brought us from, the people he's put in our lives, the things that he's given us, how good he has been, It can remind us that no matter whether things are good or bad in the present, this is all by God's goodness that I can do this, and it can enable us to have a vision for the future of how God can work in us and through us. I could spend the whole morning talking about this, but I want to move on. Continues on in verse 9. He says, but avoid foolish controversies. Why does he say but? I just want to say that for a second. He says, but, well, why? He's talking, this is where you guys came from. It's It's not a good origin story, but God's grace has miraculously saved you. But then... He, at the end, he's talking about doing things that are excellent and profitable. And again, when we start to do well, when we start doing well, it's so easy to neglect God, right? Because we're just like, oh, I got this. I'm Christian number one. You know, I, I'm so strong. I've got this all worked out. And he says, as you grow, remember that it's going to be easy to become self-assured. So he says, but don't get caught up in that and avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because they are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. 
I don't know why Paul at this point decided he really needed to hold back and not let us know what he really thought. It's like, come on, Paul, tell us how you really feel. It's like, look at this language he's using. He's, he's calling people in the church out and saying, what you're doing is unprofitable and useless, and some of you should be kicked out. You're, you're like new here this morning, uh, you know, and you're like, oh, man, are they like talking about kicking people out of church? Don't worry, we don't usually, just every second week we do like mass kicking outs, but don't worry, you're on a good week, so... This, this idea of unity, Paul uses strong language here against divisiveness in the church. And we're going to come back to this because this is so central to what it looks like for us as a community of people who claim to follow Jesus to live out the mission that he's given us. Here at FBC, we talk about leading people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, which is just our rehashing of the Great Commission. Go, make disciples. And it's so important to be unified. But we're going to come back and we're going to camp out on that. Verse 12, Paul wraps up his letter. He usually has some kind of conclusion similar to this in his letters. He says, as soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I've decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. I just, just on like a really personal level, verse 15 here where Paul says, greet those who love us in the faith. I hate it when people like, hey, tell everyone I say hi. Well, who's everyone? You know, it's like, why don't you just tell them? You know? uh, so Paul, Paul here, he writes a letter. He's like, greet everyone who's part of the faith. It's like, dude, like I, I'm going to forget. I'm not doing it. So anyways, that's my personal note. Um, so here Paul, he's saying, I'm going to go spend the winter in Nicopolis. He's kind of doing this snowbird thing. No one here can relate this morning because they're all gone. They're down in Phoenix right now. Uh, but he's like, I'm going to go hang out in Nicopolis, which is on the western coast of Greece on the Ionian Sea. And he says, Titus, I know you're down on this island called Crete. It's a bit of a ways away. In the first century, it's hard to travel. It's like, I want you to come see me. I want to spend some time with you. I may send some guys that can fill in for you in this, running this church thing there, and you come hang out with me. I love how Paul so often ends his letters in such personal ways. Paul wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. I'm not counting Hebrews. Some people would. I wouldn't. Um, and uh, at the end, he usually has kind of this really personal farewell. By my count, 10 or 11 of them have kind of a personal farewell, most of them naming specific people. Like, who's Artemis or who's Tychicus? I mean, Tychicus, he actually shows up at the end of quite a few of Paul's letters. But, like, who is he? Who is he? Is he someone that matters to Paul because he is an individual who God created, who God loves, who's part of this mission? It's easy to kind of, you know, be part of an organization and people that you don't really know think, well, we're just, we're just kind of doing stuff. We're the business of a church or we're just, you know, kind of on this mission and forget that the role and the business of the church is people. Every individual person on this planet has been created by God and he cares about them so deeply. And I love how much we can see this glimpse of Paul. Paul's dropping this crazy theological treatise about, like he just talked about like kicking divisive people out of the church. It's and then he's like, oh, by the way, I love all these people. Here are my pals. And these are my bros. These are, these are the people that I love. And I just want, I want you to give them a hug. I want you to remind them how much I love them. Paul understands the importance of being unified in the church. He understands that we do this as people who love people and work together well to thrive and to flourish in this mission of leading people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, let's hop back to verse 9 to 11, and we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit more. Read it again. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because those are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, then warn them a second time, 
After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. You've maybe heard the expression, divide and conquer. It's kind of like a, you know, the idea that if you're like in war or like playing some kind of wide game, or I don't know, do animals, how they like try to kill and eat each other. If you can like split up the team, then it's easier to take them out. This isn't really, like, I'm not suggesting that as a mandate for the church. I'm not like, hey, go divide and conquer, like, take people away from their families. No. Uh, But what I would say the church needs to be aware of is the flip side of this. We don't say divide and conquer. What I would say is divide and be conquered. The church has to understand that as we divide, we conquer ourselves in our own mission. We make ourselves useless in our own mission as we divide. And this mission that we have to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ in a world that is lost and broken and needs the hope and the love of Jesus Christ, it is too important for us to defeat ourselves as our own worst enemies as we divide in the church. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're like, wow, you know, like I, I, you know, I'm not like a divisive person. I've never done a lot. Here's what I'll say. I'll say that if you have contributed even in a small way, I have, to division in the church, even a small thing, then you've contributed to division in the church. It is not just about hearing these breaking news stories of mega churches in the states that have fallen apart. It is about our role as individuals who are part of the church to promote unity and peace and love and harmony in the church. Now, that doesn't always just, like, mean soft-selling it. Like, those are kind words. That doesn't just mean, like, smiling at everyone and pretending everything's okay. What does Paul say here? He says, warn a divisive person once, twice, three strikes, you're out. And Paul isn't prescribing something that all churches need to follow. Like, it's not, you know, this isn't a mandate. Every church from now on needs to be on a three-strike policy, and it's exactly how it works. How that plays out looks differently. But what Paul's saying is he's saying, don't stand by and just be, like, you know, spectators of division and brokenness in this organization that Jesus Christ started that's going to reach the world. Don't just allow that to happen. If, if you, so, so often we, we are like, I don't want to call someone on something. I don't want to hold someone accountable on something because it's offensive or it's awkward or it's uncomfortable. I don't want to, you know, they, what if they don't like me? or what? We need to stop doing that. The most loving thing we can do oftentimes, is to love people enough to have the courage to have the hard conversations. We sometimes call it love when we just give people space and we're like, I don't know, I don't want to go there. It's unco-. That, that's called fear. Love is caring about someone enough to step into the world and say, hey, listen, man, like, I, I care about you enough to put my neck on the line and to challenge you in an area where I think you could grow. Do we care about people's growth or do we care about the comfort and the conversation that we're having in the moment more? If you had a loved one, driving their car towards a cliff, and they're about to go off, they're speeding towards a cliff. Would you be like, ah, you know, I don't want to like, it'd be uncomfortable to tell them they're driving the wrong direction. I don't want to like, I don't want to get all up in their grill. If you jump in front of the car, you literally might get all up in their grill. But, you know, that's so often our approach with people. How much more important on spiritual issues than on mere physical issues? If we believe that a relationship with Jesus Christ is everything, how much more important? This doesn't mean we need to be like the police and going around looking for people to give a beat down to. But all of us struggle with sinfulness and brokenness, and we give in to ways that we can be divisive people. And we need to be willing to have those hard conversations. The most, some of the most loving and beneficial moments in my life have been when people have had the courage to step into my world and say, hey, Ryan, I, I want to challenge you on this thing. And that has created some of the greatest growth in my life. Sometimes I haven't received it that well. I'll be honest, this is uncomfortable. Sometimes, probably not as often, I've received it a little bit better. If we really care about people, we need to be willing to fight for this, to fight for unity. Relationships are stronger when we're willing to get into the mess 
and rebuild them rather than to just stand by and just watch the mess happen. Anyways, what I want to do this morning, sorry, I talked about that for a long time. What I want to do this morning is I want to offer you guys a list, and this list is three ways to be divisive. So if you're sitting here this morning and you're not convinced and you're like, no, Ryan, I think that division in the church sounds awesome and I am team disunity, then I have a list for you that if you put these into practice, I guarantee you that you can become one of the most divisive people in this church. Challenge accepted, right? Uh, but if you're hopefully in the camp that's like, ah, I don't know, I care about unity in the church, then I'd encourage you to think about these, maybe think about how you struggle with these and see how we can move forward past these. This isn't an exhaustive list. There are many more ways, but these are three that came to mind. And the reason I want to offer this list is because Paul lists some specific arguments and controversies people are having in the church back then. Those aren't the same arguments we have nowadays. So I'm gonna give you a few ideas of how we do this nowadays. The first way to be divisive is to major on the minors. Maybe you're like, I I don't get what that means. Let me unpack this a little bit. Sometimes, as people, especially in the church, we take minor secondary issues or topics or ideas, lifestyle choices or faith issues or theological issues, things that that are secondary to the central mission And we grow in those and become passionate about those. Maybe it's politics, I don't know. And we make those kind of the central component. And we make those a major issue when really they are a minor issue. We should minor on the minors and major on the majors. Let me explain how this could play out. Here's here's an idea. If I were to say, hey, I want everybody to stand up, come tag the stage and go back to your seat. Please don't. But if I were to say that, I'm sure most of you could figure out how to do that. You'd stand up, you'd come, touch the stage, go back, sit down. But then if I was like, okay, we're going to start like doing this as a regular practice at FBC. All of you are like, no, please don't. But if we're going to start doing this in the middle of the service. Every week, people are going to come touch the stage. I haven't given you a lot of information. I've given you simple, small, bite-sized information. Just go touch the stage, go back. In that simplicity, if we stay in that simplicity, it's so easy for us to stay unified. But what happens is as we do it, we start to form these opinions. Well, I've found that when I walk to the stage, if I use this aisle, it's better. But other people use this other aisle, and it creates traffic. And I don't know what's wrong with them. Don't they think about other people when they do that? Or how much budget in the church should be allocated to this? What should we wear when we're walking weekly to touch the stage? Are there certain shoes? Should we take our shoes off as we're walking up to the stage? Are Heelys allowed? I could get there a lot faster. Or a skateboard? You know, and as we start to do this, opinions form, and this sounds ridiculous, but like, I mean, I could unpack real, like, real things that happen in the church that are this ridiculous because we get these opinions, and maybe your opinions are good. Maybe that's a way that you actually relate to God better on a personal level. But it doesn't mean that every single person in the room has to be like you. But sometimes we think they do, so we take these minor issues, these kind of opinions that we have about how this should be practiced, and we think everyone needs to apply it to their lives, and if they don't, becomes an issue. Over time, we would see splinter groups, you know, over here would be the people who think they should run to the stage. Over here are the people that think they need to go through certain rituals on the way to their stage. Over here are the people that, like, you know, just want to get there really quickly. In the back are the people that, like, lay down during that time so no one notices that they're not going and touching the stage. You know, these different groups, and that happens so easily when we major on the minors. The simpler we keep our mission, the easier it is to be unified. The more complicated, the more extra baggage and ideas that we attach to it that we think are essential, we take minor opinions and make, and you should have opinions, you should be passionate about your opinions. That's, that's a gift from God. But when we make those the major issues and we start to judge faith and practice in the church through those, it's really easy to become divisive. 
So Paul here, he's talking, I'll give you a bit of an example. Paul's, he's talking about, what's he talking about? Uh, foolish controversies, genealogies, and arguments and quarrels about the law. This, this isn't really what we struggle with in the 21st century North American church. Most of us can't even name our great-granddaddy or great-grandmother. You know, like, if, if you can, impressive, you probably can't name your great-great-grandparents. You know, but this mattered in their culture. What they had done was they had taken cultural ideas. People say the family line that you come from defines who you are, and they would apply that to their faith and to the gospel and to their practice of faith. They would bring cultural ideas in, arguments about the law, these controversies about what makes people better or worse, and they bring it in. Well, what makes people better or worse in our culture? You know, how you're doing as a family, how successful you are in your job, how much you're making, how you're doing in school, these different things, how you look, how you dress. And so easily we allow those things to start to attach in our mind to our faith. Oh, I'm good because I do this little thing. And then what happens is when we think we're good because we do that thing, we think that people are less when they don't do that thing. We take minor issues and we make it a major. Our mission is simple, to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And that is built on this, a major issue called the gospel and a few other major components about God's character. But that's it. When we complicate it, when we, keep it, when we make it not simple, that's when we start to splinter. Jesus Christ came and lived his life and died on the cross for the gospel and for its spread, and he wanted his people to be unified around this mission. A true picture of that would be followers of Jesus Christ kneeling around the cross as Jesus breathes his last dying breath for the sake of the gospel, holding hands united in this mission. So often it's easy to get this picture of the church where we're actually just standing around the cross having arguments about how loud or quiet the music should be or what songs we should be singing or how the budget should be allocated or, you know, what the program should be like. Does the program, do the programs at the church cater to me and my own personal preferences? You can have opinions about that, but understand that is never going to be a major theological issue. So maybe you're like, how do I know if something's a major issue or a minor issue? And there's no, like, foolproof test. But I'll give you a little bit of a litmus test that I often use for my own life. If you're thinking about an issue and you're passionate about it, and that's great, if you can very simply and easily connect that to the gospel without having to do theological gymnastics, without having to turn any crazy corners or add in special language, good chance it's a major issue. If you have to really work and build the case for it to connect it to the truth of the gospel, probably a minor issue. I, I know I've been guilty of this in my life where there are things I've become passionate about and I think everyone should think and everyone should believe and every church should do this. And I, you know, it's, it, well, it's called first year of Bible college. When you go to first year of Bible college, you realize you know more than all your pastors and everyone else in the world. But what happens is you have these opinions and they're just, they take over the central mission. And we shouldn't do that. Anyways, we, we got to move on. The next way to be divisive, if you're not convinced yet, is to gossip. This, you can find all through Scripture. This is nothing new, and it will be nothing new a thousand years from now. This is one of the greatest tools for divisiveness in the church throughout history and will continue to be for a long time. So if you're here this morning and you really want to be divisive in the church, like lean into this one. This is, this is powerful stuff for you on that mission. Gossip is a tricky thing too. Because here at FBC, we talk about thinking in, engaging in personal relationships. I believe you should have people in your life that you share everything with, that you're completely transparent and honest and open with. That means coming to them sometimes and saying, I don't know, I'm struggling with this thing, I heard this person say this thing, and working that out. So where do you draw the line at gossip or not? Here's my working definition for kind of the filter I put gossip through, or try to, I struggle with this all the time. Here's my filter. Am I talking to someone 
about someone else with no intention of doing anything about it, then to me that's gossip. If you have an issue with something someone does or says or whatever, and you go to those people in your life, your spouse, maybe someone in your small group, a spiritual mentor, someone who's discipling you, someone that you're really close with, and you have the conversation, but it's about figuring out, is there something I can do about this? I do this all the time. You know, if I'm struggling with something, I'll go to my wife, Talcy. I'll say, Talcy, I'm struggling with this. And sometimes she's like, you know what? You need to go have a conversation with that person, or you need to go try to affect this change. You need to get involved in this way. Sometimes she's like, Ryan, you need to get over yourself, and you need to extend some grace. Remember that you've been saved by grace, and no one's perfect. And these are helpful conversations. But it's when it's so easy to cross that line into, I'm just talking to people to talk because I just want to talk trash. It's cathartic. It lets me blow off some steam. And when you do that, you're hurting yourself. You're hurting the person that you're talking to. You're poisoning the person that you're talking to. You're hurting the person you're talking about. You're hurting the church. And maybe most importantly, When you hurt the church, you limit the mission that we have and you hurt people outside of the church because we become incapacitated in our mission to show, if we're trying to show God's love to people and we're gossiping about each other, how how can we do that? So maybe this happens on a personal level. I've heard it in the church. I mean, churches struggle with this forever, right? Maybe it's happening on a personal level. There's someone in your small group that said something or did something or you just know someone in the church and you're struggling with them. Find someone that you really trust a spiritual mentor, and have the conversation and say, what do I do about this? How do I work through this? And a lot of times it probably means going and having a real conversation and saying, I'm struggling with this. Let's build some common understanding. Let's talk about this. Talk with them. Talking to someone else about them, that doesn't, hurt. That doesn't help anyone. This person over here isn't magically going to change because you talk trash about them to someone else for half an hour. It doesn't work that way. I'm preaching to myself right now too. And when we, talk, when we look at this letter, it's a letter about how the church works out. This is easy to happen in the church too. Especially FBC is growing bigger and bigger all the time. I mean, it's a lot of people here. And as leaders, I mean, we're, we're imperfect and we're struggling to figure out what this looks like, how to, how to do this thing. It's, it's, it's hard. And we're imperfect. If you have questions or issues, and this isn't some big call out, but it is easy to just go to people and be like, oh, I can't believe FPC did this. I can't believe this program's like this. If you have an issue something I say on a Sunday morning, it could be that I just need you to come alongside me and help me understand ways that I can grow. So please don't rob me of that. Let's be a church that engages in those real conversations. If you're talking to people about someone else with no intention of doing something about it, stop that. That's not going to help anyone. Third, certainly but not least, be arrogant. One thing that I know, when we major on the minors and we gossip, the reason we often do that is because we have these strong opinions. And you look around a room with, with this many people in it, whose opinion's right? Well, like mine, right? You know, everyone, their opinion is the rightest opinion. We have it more figured out than everyone else. This is a room, myself included, full of experts. In one way or another, we are smarter than everyone else in the room about something. I mean, we live our lives thinking that. And it's easy to fall into this trap that's just like, yeah, i got to figure it out. They don't know what they're talking about. And to become arrogant. The reality is one of the reasons we don't major on the minors is because when we do that, usually we reject variety or diversity. People having different secondary theological ideas or ideas about how faith plays out in life. And we reject it and we limit it rather than realizing that if we embrace that and we grow together in a common mission, that diversity can actually help us move forward. And this leads to arrogance, because we have all these opinions. 
And this is probably the hardest of these three for me to talk about because I, I, I couldn't feel much more hypocritical talking about something than this. Because in my life, God has really challenged and shaped some areas of my life where he's really helped me grow and I've built some strong ideals and values and principles in my life. And as I'm growing, what happens is I'm moving along this relationship with Jesus and I look back and there are these people here and they haven't figured out what I've figured out and they haven't grown in the ways I've grown in this regard. And I'm so excited about it, but I look back and I'm like, well, what's wrong with them? So then I step back and I'm like, hey, like, you got to think about this. Check, check this out. God's been teaching me this. I've been reading this in scripture. And in my mind, it makes sense to be like, oh, you're right. I'm going to completely exactly do what you do. But that doesn't usually happen. And it's so easy for me to think, what's wrong with you? Why are you less of a Christian than me? Why are you doing this? And to easily judge people. We wouldn't look at people outside of the church who don't believe in Jesus and judge them for that. At least I hope we wouldn't. We better not. We wouldn't look, judge them for that. Then why would people have small disagreements, small different opinions on how faith plays out in our lives and theological ideas? Then why do we judge about that? It's less of a gap to cross. It's so easy for us to realize, because we're so right, how wrong people are. God's really challenged me in this area of my life. I'm still struggling with it all the time. Um, it's hard when you're this awesome, but um, just kidding. It's a joke, okay, if you're new here. Um, what am I talking about? Oh, yeah, God's really challenged me, is currently right now, this area of my life. And one of the greatest things he's reminded me of and convicted me of is this. There are areas of my life where I probably do have some things figured out more than some other people. And there are some areas of my life where he's grown me by his grace beyond where some people are at. And it's easy for me to look at my strengths in comparison to people's weaknesses because that's usually what we compare. And God's reminded me that in areas, that, that for every area of my life that he's maybe helped me figure out that someone else hasn't figured out as much, that they probably have at least one area, if not more, that they've grown more in than me. And realizing, Ryan, just maybe because you're a step ahead in this race, look at, well, it's not a race, that's a bad word, but a step ahead in this journey doesn't mean you are in all of these. And realize that you have things to learn from people who even seem weaker or newer or whatever. It's so easy for us to just look at people and be like, why can't they be more like me? We don't want them to be more like you. Because remember who you are. Let's look at verse 3 and let's be reminded of who we are left to our own devices. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. This is Paul saying, left to your own devices, this is you. That's, that's a pretty brutal description of us. That's true. We're just selfish people. We look out for number one. Remember who you are, and remember that the only reason you've grown is because of this. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. An organization, a church built on the merits of humans, the good works, the abilities of humans, is a pretty pointless organization, pretty limited. But one built on the gospel, the grace the life-changing goodness and love of Jesus Christ is an organization with so much potential to absolutely revolutionize the world in this incredible mission to experience God's love and mercy and grace. The potential is there. 
It's in our unity or our lack of unity that we decide if we want to partner with that potential or if we want to stand in the way of that potential. And this is what I would say. I think this is the truth that the church lives in. Unite and conquer, divide and be conquered. This isn't like a, you know, hopefully if we unite, it helps out a bit. If we unite, we can be so successful in our mission and we can see people experience God's goodness and grace as we continue to grow in that as well. But the moments that we start to divide, even in small ways, we start to conquer ourselves. Our enemy doesn't need to do much when we're doing it for him. It is so easy for us to fall into this trap. Again, maybe you're here this morning, you're like, ah, I didn't come this morning thinking I'm a divisive person. We never like to think about ourselves that way. But what I want to challenge you with this morning is to spend some time, this list isn't exhaustive, but ask yourself this week, say, are there areas of my life, are there things I say or do or participate in or, or whatever that actually do invest into divisiveness, division, disunity in the church? Are there parts of my life that are divisive? Those are hard questions to ask. Ask God, honestly. Ask him to convict you. I'd also encourage you, find some people around you who love you enough who will warn you. Say, what are my blind spots? What are things that I'm doing that, that you know, maybe fall into these three traps or, or other things that build division in the church that don't help pe- build people up but actually tears the organization down? Ask those people and say, please just be honest. And then don't get mad at them after they answer you honestly. And say, God, help me work through this stuff. It's not an easy journey. Maybe there are conversations you need to have. Maybe there are ill feelings you've had towards people. Maybe there are words you've spoken about people you shouldn't. Maybe there are other things that you're doing that you're like, I need to go and make this right. God, give me the power by your grace to do so. And then don't just stop at being not divisive. Then say, well, what can I be doing? What more can I be doing to promote unity in the church? How can I bolster love and unity and harmony and camaraderie and teamwork and collaboration within the church body? This mission that we have is too important for us to stand by and, and conquer our own mission. The world needs God's love, and we need to be united in that. Otherwise, really, we just cheat them out of it. There's one team. The church is this interesting place where there aren't expansion teams, there aren't farm teams, there are no free agents, there's no draft, you can't hop up. There's one team, and we get to decide if we want to be a part of that and how we want to be a part of that. And every little action and every little word invests one way or another into this team. And that's really up to you, and that's between you and God how you do that. But I hope that we can be a church that stands unified in the goodness and the love and the grace of the gospel. Why don't you guys pray with me?